Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week we're discussing the first two episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Strange New Worlds, and Children of the Comet. So I think it's pretty obvious to say that we were not excited by the premise of this series when it was announced. I believe that I may have posted a picture of a loaf of white bread and said this was the cast. To be fair, at the time, that was the cast. Yeah, look, I stand by that based on the information that we had at the time. I wound up... Okay, I love every single character on this show. They are all perfect. I adore them. I will die for them. I will kill for some of them. I am not watching for the plot because the plots are annoying. No, that's not fair. I really enjoyed the first episode. I just have already seen it. And I quite enjoyed the second episode, but I remember when it was an episode of Enterprise. So, yeah. It's not that they're recycling old episodes. It's that they're going back to basics and there's only so many basics that exist. Yeah. And I feel Prodigy is telling very basic Star Trek stories with a new audience in mind. And this is telling basic Star Trek stories with the old audience in mind. To the point where I saw someone who compared watching Children of the Comet to watching a rerun of The Next Generation. And I think that's a really bad feeling for the second episode of a new series. Like you, I don't care about the plot at all. I very seldom care about the plot. I only care about the plot when it messes up the characters. (laughs) Yeah. So I loved Children of the Comet just so much. The first episode was more, it was a pilot. There was a lot of pilot stuff in that episode. Oh yeah. And it was very Star Trek and that's it, which is fine. It was good. I enjoyed it, but it it was nothing new or interesting. No. But the second episode, it wasn't that it was new or interesting, but it was such a valentine to uhura a character who has not gotten the spotlight (laughs) in the way that she did in this episode and it was a valentine to all of us who have cared about her for all these 50 years yes uhura had more characterization and backstory before the opening credits than she did in 50 odd years of television and movies and that was extraordinary i love that the plot of the episode was specifically honed to show off uhura and i just appreciated that so i was like i don't actually care that any of this makes sense Mm. because i love the idea of communicating through music and Uhura being the one to figure it out and then needing Spock to back her up. Yes. In this very Spock way. Like, I just really thought that there was a lot going on with uh, specifically Uhura and with Uhura and the other characters that it just made me happy. It's so exciting to me that the point of view character for this series after the pilot is Uhura, who is both this iconic character and a blank slate. It's fantastic to see her get her due. Uh, I hated the music side of the plot just because I am not educated or knowledgeable about music, but one thing I do know is that the European musical tradition is not universal. 
like what they were saying about chords and ratios, that is all specific to one Eurocentric understanding of music. I don't even know if it applies to Kenyan music. So that was just a bit of a record scratch moment for me. But I don't really expect anything better from a series run by Akiva Goldsman. So by that low standard and by my very simple standard of do I care about these characters and want to hang out with them, it was a win. So do you want to discuss the the characters go down the list? There's a lot of them. Yes. Pike, we know Pike. He's dealing with the trauma of knowing that there's an incredibly ableist plotline coming up for him in 10 years' time. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a, that's a great way of putting it, yes. If they rewrote Menagerie, I would not complain at all. And if they rewrote Menagerie and said, oh, actually, this is the correct timeline and the original series was wrong, sorry, that would be great. I think they're not really drawing a distinction between Pike's fear of injury and devastating pain and a traumatic and radical change to his life versus his fear of the chair. And I feel like the chair has always been a really ableist symbol going back to the 60s even in the way it's designed, which is vaguely reminiscent of a Dalek, which may or may not be intentional, looking at the timing, it's possible. But Pipe's chair is always an object of horror and fear. And I'm like, this thing is keeping him alive. It is the only means by which he has to communicate and prevents him from a life being stuck in a bio bed. That chair is a miracle. He should be covering it with stickers and go faster stripes. So the fear around the chair is so misguided to me and it feels like another case of able-bodied people writing about disability. So I have been told that they can't change it because it's already been told. The story has already been told. We've already seen Pike's end. Sure, Jan. Like you, I am very much team decanonize Menagerie. <laughs> we can't decanonize Cage anymore because that's already happened in this particular show, but we can decanonize the menagerie. Una is also team decanonize the menagerie. So. Una is correct. Yeah, let's, let's go with her. I just think that if we can open this series by saying actually Spock lied in a mock time when he said he had no prior relationship with Chapring, then Spock lied in the menagerie and some medical ship is coming by after oh, a week on Talos 4 to rescue Vina and Pike and give them the medical treatment that the 23rd century should be able to provide. Right. But people tell me this and they're like, we can't change it. And it's, yeah, like you said, yes, they can. And also they don't have to focus on it. Mm. They don't have to make it the one recurring arc (laughs) (laughs) through the season. Pike being upset that he's going to be disabled. That's not great. No. I think that it's a very fine line and they are so far from my perspective. And I think this is uh, just what, just me. I'm not speaking for anyone else. They are not walking it. They are tripping over into ableism. Yeah. And I think I would feel better about this storyline if there was even one disabled person in the writer's room. And the same goes for Hema and his scene with Ahura in this second episode. They need disabled writers, they need to hire a disability consultant yesterday, like last week. 
they need disabled people to be talking to them. Because Uhura is our point of view character for that episode. Mm. She was the one who had to have that scene with Hammer. But it was a little... I also didn't love the optics of that. Mm. <laughs> that they put Uhura in that role. And that they put Spock in the very, very Vulcan, I'm going to tell you how it is, human. It was like all of the things that I don't like about what they do with Vulcans and cadets, young black women, like all of it is just no. Basically, Uhura comes up to Hema like Harry Kim coming up to Quark, being like, oh, you're blind. Basically, I learned about blind people at the academy. That's not remotely what she said, but that was the vibe. And it was just like mm -hmm. the trope of the disabled person who pretends to be really prickly about offers of help is ableist when it comes from able-bodied writers. I just think you see a person with a disability who is carrying on minding their own business, doing a thing without any assistance. You don't drop everything to rush across the room and offer to help them with whatever they're doing. Right. And her line that she was taught to offer yeah. help to to anyone with a disability, that was the line that I was like, why are you having Uhura say this? That just, no, no I... this is the wrong person for that line. Maybe they were trying to point out that is not a, a great way for the non-disabled person to talk. Oh, <laughs> like I didn't they, get that they, at they, all. Like, like I, I, my theory was they were like, oh, okay, so they understand that you shouldn't just pop up to people and be like, it's polite to help you, <laughs> because that's impolite, turns out. Mm. But the fact that, again, they gave it to the young Black woman with the least power in the room. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the that. I didn't like it. I just think the Federation in the 23rd century is an incredibly ableist society and normally I'm all aboard with the Federation is not a utopia but what if it was less ableist? And I think you're right that it comes down to the people who are writing it are the ableists. Yeah. And even when they try really hard to not be they're doing it wrong. And I'm not saying I would do it better I'm just saying find some people find some real people there is a whole internet out there of how to write about disability, how to talk about disability, and so many people who would be very happy to consult with Star Trek to say this is how you do it well and with nuance and, and dignity, and they just don't seem to be aware that's a possibility at all. To the point where like TNG was doing better with Geordie in the 80s. I don't want to go backwards, but sometimes I feel like we're fighting this sort of, like, again, there's these good intentions versus actual good. Yeah. And I think that people think that their good intentions are enough. And if your good intentions are still harming people, then they're not. Yeah. Does that make sense? There seems to be a disconnect, whereas, like, we're now in a place in society where making sure that everyone is represented and everyone is heard and validated is important, but we're not at the point where we're doing it. Yes. And it's frustrating because Discovery does this so well and so thoughtfully. And then Prodigy is a show where they make mistakes and they agree that they've made mistakes and actively work to do better. Uh, did I say Prodigy? I meant Lower Decks. You meant Lower Decks. Yes. Yes. I got and it. I figured it out, though. You speak fluent, Liz. And, and Prodigy <laughs> seems really thoughtful about its representation. 
And then you have Akiva Goldsman's Star Treks going, Ah, I'm a straight white man. I'm going to fix Discovery by bringing in the original series characters. I like stories about men like me. That's my Akiva Goldsman voice. <laughs> Very good. Is it going to be a recurring character? <laughs> this is going to be a recurring rant of mine for the next eight episodes. <laughs> so... so let's talk about Spock and Frank, since you mentioned them. Okay, I ship it. They're very controversial in the fandom, mm -hmm. mainly because they're kissing in human ways. And my main response to that, I gotta say, is... Who do you think is more likely to have taught Spock how to kiss someone? His father <laughs> or his mother? <laughs> Sorry, I just pictured the most awkward sex ed scene. <laughs> just saying, one of these yeah, yeah. would not have done it. <laughs> and the other would have made sure. So I think that it is reasonable. I also, we don't know. We've never actually seen... Like, actually, we have seen sex scenes between a Vulcan and a human in Enterprise, and it yes. was very human. It was, mm. There was a lot of touching going on. Kissing, touching, yeah. hands, yeah. bodies. Sorry. So all of those people are wrong. They're wrong because Enterprise exists. And I know that's, you know, not a hill to die on, but... <laughs> My thing is, we know that T'Pring is going to choose to marry someone else, and her beef is that she doesn't want to compete with Starfleet in Spock's affections, and she doesn't want to, as she says, be the wife of a legend, because that's what Spock is already becoming. These are totally legitimate reasons to not want to marry someone, but that doesn't mean she has never cared about him, and never been eager to pursue a relationship with him, and she has never suggested that she has any problem with his being half-human. And so her being open to human expressions of sexuality mm -hmm. kind of makes sense to me. Nothing we saw in 1967 contradicted that. I like it. I loved Dupring. Yeah. She was so on point. I was super into it. And Spock was so awkward, which was perfect. Yes. And the fact that T'Pring and Pike... That they are on first name terms. ...were less awkward than T'Pring and Spock was great. It was great because it showed T'Pring as a real person. Yes. This idea that she was always an ice princess, I think that what they're showing with this series so far is that she's a real person mm. who had her own plot line that we didn't get to see and we probably still won't get to see it but now it's not just like shadows and figures and mm. the ideas of men put on her in a mock time i think she's almost a plot device she's the mean bitchy lady who won't marry spock and who contrives to have spock and kirk fight to the death because she i guess Vulcan divorce law is very illogical. I've always been a bit puzzled by that. But now she has so much more personality and she's actually what I always wanted to poll to be. I remember in 2000 seeing the first character descriptions when casting was going out and it was like a, sen a sens sensuous yet ruthlessly logical Vulcan woman. That is T'Pring. In, in just a couple of scenes she is so lively and I love that. 
I'm so eager to see more of her. And yeah, I do kind of ship it in that way where it's not going to work out, but she's not a villain, she's not a monster, she's not preparing to launch a Vulcan land scam. Uh, she's just a person. favourite type <laughs> of relationship. Mm. That's what I ship always. These people, for whatever reason, cannot be together, but they have that chemistry anyway. I can see her in 20 years' time helping Spock mentor Savick. Because Spock's like, this yeah, Vulcan I, I, girl has come into my life and I don't know many Vulcan women anymore, but you were my T'Pring, can you help me? And then T'Pring and Ston take her on field trips and stuff. I can't accept it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Way better than that real estate scam. Oh yeah. No offense, Diane Dway. I love your work, but what the hell? So, Una. Let's Una. Don't have a full... Una and Mabenga, I can say. Yeah. They didn't do much <laughs> yet. Uh, Una did more. Mabenga, I have no read on whatsoever. Was he in the second episode? No, he wasn't. Remember. So I really have not, I have nothing to say about him. He's attractive. <laughs> he is. He's very attractive. <laughs> like, but Una, also attractive. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> did get to do more and has the benefit of being someone that we've wanted to know more about for years and years and years. And I think they're sort of holding back on that a little because they know that there's the anticipation of wanting to know who Una is and what is her deal. But in the small scenes that we've had, I really enjoyed her. I love that her idea of taking leave is to go out and run a first contact mission. Like, Una, you nerd. And the scene in <laughs> the second episode where she and Pike are doing the dishes after his dinner party. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of my favourite tropes in science fiction is the dinner party in space. Ideally an awkward one, thank you the Undiscovered Country, but people sitting around and sharing a meal, it's, it's a great shorthand for going, these guys are a family. And it's surprising mm -hmm. that it took Discovery three seasons to realise that, but here they've jumped right in and I, I, I love it so much. I love that Pike cooks for his crew. I love that he is cooking white man cowboy food like ribs because he is a white man cowboy dude and the domesticity of a, of Una cleaning up with him afterwards and talking about their crew it's like are they just colleagues are they people who are in love but keep it professional are they sometimes friends with benefits are they just friends who love each other platonically and deeply. I don't know. It could be all of these things, and that is so great. It's so great. I also love in the first episode when they go to rescue her and her two crewmen. <laughs> and yeah, she's out there on a first contact mission with two people. Yeah. Holy <laughs> starship. Two people. Amazing. I love it. I love it. And she's injured and Pike is helping her walk. Mm. And then they like go out and they get into a fist fight and she like totally participates in the fist fight and then gets back on his shoulder and, and, and he helps her to the elevator. That was perfection. That was such amazing shorthand for how close their relationship is and who those two people are because yes. he was fine with letting her go and taking care of things and then coming right back like it was just mm. he trusted her to be a part of the fight and be, be fine like he wasn't trying to protect her over anybody else it was just 
so good. And because there's no dialogue or anything, it didn't come across as a hashtag strong female character sort of thing because she does let him help her and she's reserving her strength to fight if she has to. That's smart. That tells us about her. I love it. And I love that she is La'an's mentor and rescuer. I need to know everything about them. I yes. love them. I love La'an. We're not to her yet. but No. We, we still have three more new old characters to discuss. Yes. So I want to ask, do you think Uhura needed a tragic backstory? No. No. No, she didn't. <laughs> but we've had this discussion before that being an orphan is the easiest way to get people to care about you. Just like a space dinner party is the easiest way to make your crew a family. So I get it. I get it. And everybody who's saying that Nichelle Nichols is her grandma. Great. Yes. And so I'm okay with it. And it, it's literally like the best part is that I wrote that backstory, but I gave it to Katrina Cornwell. Like, yes. no joke. Shuttle accident, parents dead, raised by grandfather was my backstory for Katrina Cornwell in multiple fics. I mean, I'm into it. I'm not against it. Like you just said, did Uhura need a tragic backstory? No. Guess what? Katrina Cornwell also did not need a tragic backstory. However, I gave her one. So I cannot fault the writers for pulling an Annika. Absolutely not. We already know that La'an has a tragic backstory. So I'm like, are they going to bond over being orphans? Is this how it's going to go? I want to say how many orphans can you fit on one starship, but then I think about how many orphans there are on all the other starships. It's a thing. In Discovery, we, we were making fun of this last season where every single person came up and said, here's my tragic backstory right. why I'm in Starfleet. And so at this point, if you don't have a traumatic backstory, you don't get to be in Starfleet. Like they only take people. <laughs> who have a traumatic backstory. Everyone else fails out of those tests that they put Wesley through mm. in the first season of TNG. Also, it's kind of a relief to have this come up at a social event and not in the middle of a crisis on the bridge. So well yes. done, Ahura. <laughs> so much better. It stopped all the plot, but it was stopped all the plot for a purpose. Like it was part of the plot for it to stop the party and everyone was like, ooh, this mm. is rough. Now we know too much about our new character our new person that we brought into this family like you said yeah and it, that was another element that was the only time that it was actually an awkward dinner party i know and it could have been so much worse i, I guess if someone ever asks spock about his parents that will make it awkward I think they know enough not to ask him about his parents. And also Spock is clearly the person they make fun of all the time anyway, since this is... it, it could have been awkward for him to be like, I don't understand humor, mm. but it wasn't because they were all like, oh, just Spock being Spock. Yes. Yes. That's so Spock of you. <laughs> when Pike says sometimes things are so terrible, you have to laugh. My flatmate said in her Spock voice, ah, yes, my relationship with my father. Let's talk about Christine Chapel, because, again, the wisdom of my flatmate, she said, Chapel seems like she's in a completely different show, but in a good way. Yes, I think that is accurate. And your flatmate isn't even the only person I've seen say it. It's what we're getting from Chapel, which is great, because I feel like I'm in her show. That's where yeah. that, the Star Trek that I belong in is, is the, the Christine, Christine Chapel show. show. That's the Starfleet where I fit in. 
<laughs> I do not fit into any of these others. And I love her. Yes. And we know that she's a civilian on exchange. And, you know, we hate the tragic backstory of the original series where she was a medical student and her fiancé went missing and she joined Starfleet as a nurse to find him. I feel like this version is she was a nurse and her fiancé went missing and she does this exchange because it's better than sitting around waiting for news. That doesn't seem to be who Christine Chapel is. And that alone is a better story and a better explanation for her. And it's great. And she really does come across as a civilian among pseudo-military types. And she is not intimidated and also not, what's the word, assimilating? She's not yeah. going to join them. Yeah. She's just going to be herself. And that's great. It's so great. I feel badly about how negative I am towards Christine Chapel, but it's entirely due to her backstory and every plot she gets that is related to a man mm. not wanting her. <laughs> I don't want to watch that. All of that plus the nepotism of Gene Roddenberry having to have his girlfriend in a role always put me off Chapel. And I know it's probably not fair to blame Majel Barrett for Gene Roddenberry, but you know, they were a partnership by the end, so it's hard to separate them. But I really love Jess Bush's Chapel. She is Australian. She has only got seven credits in her IMDb, including Strange New Worlds, and her Australian stuff is not the finest quality Australian media. But she has this sort of chaotic energy, like her American accent is not very good and she keeps falling out of it. And I'm like, yes, that is perfect for Chapel. And chaotic energy is exactly right. That's why I'm like, I'm in her show. <laughs> that's, that's where I fit in. The, I refuse to be a part of your paramilitary and I'm also not going to be like any of you. <laughs> I'm just going to do my own thing. Even her hair is just, yes. I just love it. I love it. I'm very happy with Chapel. I'm so excited. And she's flirting with both Spock and, and Uhura. So that's like her two main ships from the 60s and I am so here for the Spock Uhura Chapel Thrupple. Yes. Sorry to Pring. And Renaissance. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. Speaking of chaotic energy, Sam Kirk. <sighs> Look, it was funny when he turned up at the end of the first episode, kind of alienating to my flatmate as a casual viewer who doesn't know who he is. And that's a vibe I get for him in general, that he is here because this is not a show that wants to welcome new viewers. And he's useless and stupid, and I guess I'm into that himbo energy, but why is he here? I like the people who are comparing him to the security officer on Galaxy Quest. Yes! That seems accurate to me. I find the whole thing weird, I'll be honest. Yeah. The fact that both Pike and Spock have a relationship with Sam Kirk is strange to me. And he's goofy, so that doesn't line up with... There isn't really canon Sam Kirk because he dies in his first appearance. And he's literally just William Shatner wearing a false mustache. Yeah, so it's not... We don't actually know anything about him, but Fanon Sam Kirk, not that guy, <laughs> is, is much more of a, like a space cowboy like Pike and, and being part of the Kirk family. And then in the Kelvin universe, there's a lot of 
horror going on mm-hmm. in the Kirk family. Kirk also gets a tragic backstory in the Calvin universe. So that's a really dark version where the child abuse happening. And so this himbo energy galaxy quest version of Sam Kirk doesn't fit in with any of the preconceived notions mm-hmm. of him. And that's interesting. And so I'm interested to see where it goes. But I also just feel like it's I really disliked knowing that Jim Kirk has been cast. I guess they weren't going to announce that and they were forced to, so. No, it was like I guess they, they feel bad. But I really hated the, we're gonna Lieutenant Kirk, Lieutenant mm-hmm. Kirk, and then it's mm-hmm. Sam Kirk. I hated that. I was like not into it at all. It's manipulative of the audience for no reason, just to pull a fast one. And that's my least favorite mm. modern television happenstance, <laughs> so. No, my feeling is that he's there because someone went, oh, we don't have enough white guys. You know, in the first two seasons of Discovery, each first episode had a white guy who seems like a major character and then he's unexpectedly killed because this is not that show. We know that Sam Kirk cannot be unexpectedly killed, but I keep waiting for it. (laughs) Decanonize whatever that episode was. (laughs) Decanonize TOS. It's my new platform. Love Sorry, it. Sorry, that's bad. Okay. Wait until you hear my opinion that the Enterprise is a stupid looking ship and we should see as little of its outside as possible. <laughs> okay, we only have one more new old character and we don't need to say too much about him, but it's Admiral April. Yes. black guys. Nifty. Uh- Fandom is very angry because fandom is very racist. That fandom can get over it. The dude who appeared in the original series as basically Gene Roddenberry wearing a cardigan is actually a handsome black man. And my only objection to this casting is that he is much, much too young to mm. have the position that he does. However, I choose to believe he's, that... He's greying. Yes. Maybe he's older than he looks or older than oh. the actor. Because this is the future. People can be... I have a whole fic worked out where while he's captaining the Enterprise, he is caught in a de-aging thing. And unlike Commodore April in the animated series or Picard in Rascals, he isn't returned to his original self. He's just like a 30-something looking captain aging the normal way. Uh, I also have this whole thing where he and Katrina Cornwell were kind of like, he was much older than her and a captain and she was a psychiatric resident, but they had this borderline inappropriate serious relationship that didn't work out because famously he has a wife and I have mentioned in like fix and stuff that his wife was Cornwell's mentor but I'm readjusting my fanon shall we say because he's so handsome I really loved this casting it reminded me of Commodore Paris yes and my tag my tumblr tag that is Tom Paris is not white in the Kelvin verse, mm. something like that, which is great. Very celebratory of, of the idea that Tom Paris isn't white because he was the very white man yes. of Voyager. Speaking of loaves of white bread. And taking that the next step and saying, actually, in the real universe, also Robert April mm. is a black man. And it reminds me of, did you ever watch Timeless? The, no, the television series no, Timeless? I know of it. I loved that show. It was... Not great, but it was great. <laughs> it was not good, but it was great. That's what mm. I mean. That's what I mean. Anyway, they go through history, and one of the episodes they meet up with the person who was the template for the Lone Ranger. 
who was black and everyone was like what it reminds me of that it was like just because your history book is wrong doesn't yes. mean that this isn't reality and i love that he straddles the generation between jonathan archer and christopher pike i, I knew you would have a feeling yes. about that too for those who, who do not see annika's face over zoom she just i put her hand over her heart <laughs> because jonathan archer my trash captain your trash captain he's the worst but he's another person who's not good but great <laughs> so in our new characters we have fewer new characters which kind of annoys me but okay we have La'am Noonien Singh who I love and I will die for her and I will kill for her she is tiny and angry and traumatized she's getting the Tasha Yar backstory which I don't hate no because I want justice for Tasha Yar. Because Tasha dies before the first season ends, her backstory seems very sensational and very- Trashy. Like it, yeah, trashy. That's a good word for it. It doesn't work because we didn't actually explore it in any way. Mm. But a character who is not destined to die, who we do get to see why that backstory is a part of it. What is being used to say about the Federation mm. and about space exploration in general? I think those are really interesting questions that I'm excited to learn. And also she's Tasha Yar, but without rape in the backstory, which I think right. helps a lot. I don't know if my family were eaten by Gorn is better, but also it's interesting that she is clearly connected with the eugenics wars in some way, but the tragedy of her past is something else. Her, her mm -hmm. story is deeper than what her surname suggests. And I love that. And I look forward to her learning how to be part of a space family. And I also, again, when they get into the prison and Udo recognizes La'an and Pike is like, huh? But he also immediately adopts her. <laughs> He's yes. like, oh, you're Una's fake daughter. That means you're my fake daughter too. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was perfection. It's like, how it works on I this ship, guys. So much. It was so good. Also, Christina Chung doesn't actually look like the actress who plays drummer in The Expanse, but the heavy makeup and the dark hair pulled back in a tight braid gives me drummer feelings. So I'm into that. Another thing that you're not alone in, it's like going all over Twitter. They're like, hey, people oh, yeah, who are missing yeah. drummer, guess what? To so. the point where I think it's almost a little reductive, but I'm also not going to pretend that wasn't my reaction as well. I don't know if we know enough about Ortegas to have a strong opinion about her, but I like her and I want to hang out with her to get to know her better. She was very much a, I'm going to introduce you to these other characters character. The one thing we learned is that she is yet another best pilot ever. This is another thing where if you are a pilot in Starfleet, you're the best pilot in Starfleet. I don't think that Starfleet puts out mediocre pilots. That's literally every single one of them. Every single one of them is like, turns out I'm the best. <laughs> so but I love that this time the best pilot in Starfleet is a woman of colour who mm. I don't want to assume from her haircut, but she's probably queer. Sadly, there was a lot of heterosexual things going on, both in text and subtext. Yeah. And the queer relationships were definitely subtext and it was subtext that like we were reading into <laughs> it was not actual subtext so far queerness in this show is 
Ortega's haircut and two women make eye contact and say hello to each other. Again, about what I expect from Akiva Goldsman. But they have time. If we don't get a queer character by the end of the first season, I'm going to have words. Absolutely. Give Ortega's a girlfriend 2K22. Hammer, I also don't feel like we really got a read on him. He mainly was in that scene that we didn't necessarily like with Aurora. Mm. I enjoyed his repartee with Spock and the fact that he's the new chief engineer, but they are clearly already bros. And Mm. I enjoy Andorians, and I'm not even up to the Einar plot on Enterprise, but I look forward to getting there. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. And for my complaints about ableism, I do love that we have a disabled character played by a disabled Mm. actor. It's another thing where I'm willing to, it's not even the the third episode. I give every show three episodes to win me over. So it's fine. It's the second episode. Like I said, they have the whole season to get a queer character. They have the whole season to prove me wrong about ableism. I am wanting that. Those are the things that I want. I want them to be better than I expect. Right. So I'm definitely willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm just saying so far it hasn't happened. Yes. And maybe that's the showrunners just trying to lure the fan bros in before it becomes as queer and woke, quote unquote, as Discovery. Which I'm okay with. People are already complaining. Our other new character is Captain Battelle, Pike's lover, girlfriend, friend. friend. Lady friend. (laughs) She's played by Winona Earp. That's... I had no idea. That's all I need to love her. (laughs) Everyone was like, oh, she's played by Melanie Scrafado. And I was like, I have no idea who that is. But also my reaction was, oh gosh, she's very young to be a Starfleet captain. Like, I want to like her, but I don't know if I can like like her. And then I looked her up and she is literally six months older than me. So it is too young to be my character. This is going to become a problem as I age, but she is the perfect age to be a Starfleet captain. So I need to... But yes, I hope we see more of her. She reminded me of Pike's girlfriend, Pike's girlfriend, Archer's girlfriend in Enterprise. Yes, she reminds me of Archer's girlfriend as well. It's another thing where I feel like if I was in charge of these shows, I would definitely want to redo things that didn't work out in the first. If I'm doing this nostalgia-driven show, Mm. I'm going to say, oh, we didn't get to actually do Tashiar. We didn't get to actually do Captain... Something um, with a Z. <laughs> <laughs> I something. I can't remember. It's, it's something with a, a Z. <laughs> yeah, she had a lovely little fringe. I'm fine with that and I'm into it. Yeah. I want now. I want, and this is going to be crazy, it being me, mm. but I want there to be another Harry Mudd episode <laughs> so that Stella Mudd can be in an episode with Captain Patel. That would make oh my, my God. little Winona Earp part. <laughs> very happy so make it happen (laughs) i'm very into casual relationships between starfleet captains and i'm really into captain battelle and i would love to see more of her and learn about her personality and all of that right because right now all she is is hey did you know that pike is totally heterosexual (laughs) totally heterosexual (laughs) fyi and also sexy and asexual creature you know it's it's very hey guys yeah pike and spock are very 
sexy and very heterosexual. Yeah. They might be bi, but they're definitely not gay. So, is it time to talk about hair? (laughs) I was just looking at the timer and we only have four (laughs) minutes left. So yeah, let's skip to the really important stuff. Hair trick. I just want to say that everybody's hair is amazing. Maybe not good, again, (laughs) not always good, but amazing. Pike's hair is amazing. Yeah, I will not hear a word against Pike's hair. (laughs) Spock's hair is ridiculous on every level, especially his cyber. I have decided that this is his way of annoying Sarek without having to actually interact with him. He knows that as science officer on the flagship, he will appear in the media and so forth by Pike's side and whatnot. And he knows that every single time Sarek sees his non-standard sideburns, Sarek will experience a mild emotional reaction. I think that is correct because... His sideburns remind me of when my son does his eye makeup and it does like the the cat eye, like wings, like whoosh, like that. That is definitely to make a point with his makeup. So I think that is an accurate headcanon. And I just, I feel badly for Ethan Peck. (laughs) (laughs) He looks ridiculous. And it's it's not fair because he's a beautiful person. Maybe they need those silly sideburns to, like, undermine the shocking power of his face. They also made Spock have no body hair. Yeah, like, what? I'm not quite sure why. Because Leonard Nimoy flat refused to shave his chest when he had to go shirtless as Spock, because Spock has body hair, guys. Just saying. It's just, again... Half human, so even if it's like a Vulcan thing, allowed to have chest hair. Maybe, maybe he had his body hair removed because he thought Dupring might be uncomfortable with that level of humanity. And had he asked her, Query, how do you feel about body hair? She would have been like, fact, I love it. Right? Mm. She wanted to run her fingers I don't want to think about Spock's chest hair anymore. Please make it stop. <laughs> uh, we already discussed Ortega's gay hair. Yes. But also great. And also, I love that actress. She is amazing on Twitter. She is having so much person. fun. She's just so bright and cheerful, and she's so excited, and it was great. It was just yes. great. And then Chapel's hair is, like, I want it. I want Chapel's hair. I like that Pike's facial hair is, like, proof of his depression. <laughs> and it was, it was the same as Fox in, yes. in the second season of Discovery. Like, it's just so hilarious to me. Do you remember, I think it's season three of Alias after the time jump and Sydney comes back to the CIA and her father is in prison and he has a depression beard and it looks like there's a wombat on Victor Garber's face. Pike's beard was much, much better than that, but that's what it reminded me of. Right. It's just really funny to me. And I get that he is a very active man, so he was out riding his horse all the Mm. time, and so he didn't fall into any other kind of depression body. It was just his hair. But it was. it's just really funny to me that 
when they're sad, they have wild facial hair. And then when they come back to the fold, it's like, no, must be clean shaved. Except for Will Riker, whose beard is like the opposite of a depression beard. Right. <laughs> but also Pike's hair and his depression beard are still clean. His beard is unkempt, but mm. not in an unhygienic way. I just... Pike's idea of a depression beard is so wholesome to me. He still brushes it. Yeah, yeah. He still maintains yeah, like, the Pike. If this oh. is rock bottom for Christopher Pike, some of us would fall much further. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then Venga just has a beard and is not depressed, I assume. It's a very nice beard. And it's, it's a very, a very nice beard. 60s Again, beard. As all is I have fitting. to say about Venga is... Very attractive. <laughs> I hope to have more to say about Menengus. Yes, I don't want to spend this whole season objectifying the man for his looks. I want to also objectify him for his personality. That's right. And then we have and Sam's then... regrettable hipster moustache. Regrettable hipster moustache. Oh my goodness, that reminds me of Once Upon a Time. Yes. <sighs> One of my favourite episodes with the uh, hipsters. Apparently... Parties in fandom have been complaining about Uhura's hair and saying that Celia Argooding is bald. And first of all, no. No. I mean, a, don't comment on a black woman's hair except to say, that looks really nice. Second, she's clearly not bald. She clearly has hair, a normal amount yeah, of hair I, for a, like it's it's like an Afro pixie cut. People are just coming up with reasons to be angry at Uhura. Yeah, and it makes me, yeah, kind of out of my lane, but I wonder if it's because Celia Gooding is bisexual and non-binary and darker skinned than Nichelle Nichols or Zoe Saldana. I think if they had cast someone lighter skinned and more feminine. Yeah, I think the, I'm going to say it wrong, but misogynoir is definitely a part of it. She's not the dainty Uhura that they want. Nichelle mm. Nichols and Zoe Zaldana were both ballerinas. I have no idea if Celia Gooding Jr. was. I think they can dance because they've done musicals, but certainly they have a more muscular body type. They look stronger. More of a tap dancer. Yeah, yeah. And to me, like, they don't look like Nichelle Nichols, but the way they carry themselves playing Uhura, they have a real sincere sweetness that I think yes. is very much in the mould of Nichelle Nichols. And whereas Zoe Zaldana's Uhura, whom I also love, but she was a bit more of a hashtag strong female character. And right. Gooding's is more vulnerable and more open. And that's great. I love that we have these different takes. And I love Gooding's Uhura. I love her. She's great. And I can't wait for her to just take over. <laughs> it's <pretty> great. <sighs> so... Like you said, I love all these characters. So far, there's no one that I am angry at or don't want to know more about. Except Sam Kirk. I don't care about Sam Kirk. Mm. The only thing I have to say about Sam Kirk is that I want to know what his relationship with his brother is like. Yeah. Because those are the kinds of relationships that I really love. Oh, and also, I love, and I will love forever, whoever decided to make Sam Kirk a xenoanthropologist, yes! exactly like Michael, Michael, is my hero. That is so adorable. I just love it. I loved that so much. And that he does seem somewhat competent, I guess, maybe. I want to know about his relationship with his mother. It's just crazy talk. No, I know. <laughs> they that would never do that for us. 
well, we're going to find out she... No, I'm not going to say it. Let's introduce our new regular feature for Antimatterpod's Strange New World season. Where is Katrina Cornwell right now? And reduced to atoms floating in space is not an acceptable answer. Correct. Annika, where is Katrina Cornwell right now? So, I think it's like around six months have gone by. That's how Ish. long. Yes. So, I think that Katrina Cornwell is still in Laurel's ship being worked on and put back together Vogue-like. <laughs> that was going to be my answer. God damn it. <laughs> being lovingly reassembled by House Mokai. <laughs> to what purpose, we don't yet know. Stay tuned next time for more <laughs> on Where's Katrina Cornwell right now. Do we need to come up with other answers? Because that's like the only one I've got. <laughs> I mean, if you want it to be a recurring thing, I, can, I, I have another one, but I don't want to say it now because I want to hold it for next time. Okay, okay. I'm going to propose that her death was all a terrible misunderstanding that led to a lot of paperwork for Starfleet, and she is currently sipping Mai Tais with Admiral April. Nice. Hmm. And his wife. If you and know. his wife. That's, that's fine too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and now Instagram. Yay! All at AntimatterPod. And write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com, which is working. Yeah, we found out it didn't work, but we fixed it. I propose that we will start posting our cat pictures to our Instagram. That will be our, our next thing. So everyone, when we talk about our cats, you will have a visual. Yeah. If you like us or our cats, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks. Two weeks? Yes. <laughs> I don't know when anymore. <laughs> and join us in two weeks when we will be discussing the next episode of Strange New Worlds. We reserve the right to change our schedule, but it's roughly bi-weekly from here. Ish. Except when I'm on vacation. <laughs> or at two cons, simultaneously. <laughs>